Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome a great friend today, Will Fernani, the Chief Executive Officer of the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System. Will's current role is a homecoming of sorts as he holds a master's degree and a PhD from UAB after earning his undergraduate degree from the University of Alabama. Before taking the helm at UAB, Will was CEO at the University of Mississippi, and our friendship goes back over 20 years when Will was the chief marketing officer for Penn Medicine, the University of Pennsylvania's health system. Will, welcome and thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here, Tom. Why don't we start with a question, Will, that has a little bit to do with the pandemic, but with a little bit of a twist. I remember a number of years ago, UAB doing some very creative work in the area of virtual encounters. I wonder if you could describe some of those initiatives and tell me whether you think they positioned you to adapt more quickly to the pandemic. About uh, five years ago, maybe a little more, we decided that we need to redefine primary care to totally take it apart and look how it should be for the future. And when you start doing that, we haven't finished that project yet, but when you start doing that, what really stands out immediately is the issue of telemedicine and um, electronic means of communicating with your patient. And so the first thing we started with was what we call EUAB um, medicine, which was a, a synchronous a platform where our patients can uh, log on, put in their credit card, uh, ask a question uh, by filling out a form, and our doctors would get back to them. If we could help them, they were charged, the I think it was $25. If we couldn't help them, then they weren't charged anything, and we directed them to a doctor. It's still going on. It's been so successful that it, uh, one of my favorite stories is one of our patients was on vacation in Europe and remembered this and used it to uh, help her while she was sick in her vacation in Europe. We then moved on from that into uh, telemedicine, and we really developed telemedicine mainly for our rural care in Alabama. Uh, we wanted to be able to support the rural hospitals we manage and other rural hospitals. Then came COVID. And the way I like to describe it is telemedicine. It was similar to Alibaba uh, and SARS. Most people don't know that Alibaba in China was really struggling because the Chinese did not want to um, get away from shopping in their small shops as they traditionally have done. But when SARS hit, they started to uh, order online and Alibaba took off. And the same thing happened with telemedicine around the country and particularly here in Alabama, within a few months, we had a 2,000% increase in telemedicine. And since the pandemic has started, we've done over 300,000 visits. And now, 32% of our ENM visits are telemedicine. The, the trivia fact that I love is that our telemedicine, we actually calculated this based on where our patients lived. We've saved over 12 million miles driven which is the equivalent of taking uh, 1,080 cars off the road for a year, which you don't think about that when you think about telemedicine, but it even has an environmental uh, impact. One of the things I'm most excited about is uh, we call Health Loop. And Health Loop is where we're uh, 
working with our faculty, we've determined the apps that are most needed in our patient care and some specific diseases. Our doctors write a, a prescription. It's not really a prescription, but they write a prescription. And the patients come up to a kiosk in our Kirkland Clinic and where we download the um, app and show the patients how to use it. In the process of developing this, most people don't know this, but Medicare actually now has codes for apps. There's a code for when you uh, download one, and there are different codes if it's an app you monitor. So I'm really excited about this, and it uh, and our, our faculty are excited about it also. So you asked the question, do you think we were well positioned for COVID? I think we were lucky. And yes, uh, because of what we were doing, and we have been well positioned for, for COVID. Will, at 32% of your E&M visits uh, remaining virtual, you're kind of on the high end of, of our members, as we uh, recently concluded in some research. And we see some of our members uh, being about half of that. Where in, in your organization, where do you see, which clinical specialties do you see more on the upper side of of the range, and where has virtual kind of really gotten a lot of traction? Obviously, psychiatry. Most people would immediately think of that. Neurology, um, primary care, those are the three main ones where people are, uh, our faculty are using it. Then obviously with your surgeries, the, the type of visits they have, it's not real applicable on that. So it's really our our medicine, rheumatology is another one that uses dermatology, actually. Yep. Uses yep. a lot of it. You know, our biggest issue with uh, telemedicine visits and having 32% is how to figure out how to make money with it. It's a real problem. If the faculty would love to have their exam room where they see one patient live and the next two patients, they do telemedicine and then one patient live. If you do that, you lose money. And so I think many of the people around the country are struggling with how do you make this uh, a viable option that's not a money-losing proposition, particularly when you have to factor in the fact that your ancillary visits go way down when you do telemedicine. Yeah, we've seen uh, something in the neighborhood of about 50% drop-off in ancillaries per virtual visit. Um, but interestingly, we've seen the weighted average of virtual and in-person, uh, the ancillaries have come back to almost be where they were in, in the 2019 baseline, which makes us think that uh, that you guys are probably doing a pretty good job of triaging uh, who needs to be seen in person and and who doesn't. But that brings us to a question that, that I was planning to ask you anyway. And I take you back to a conversation that you and I had early in the spring when the pandemic was first in its first big surge. And I was asking you uh, what you were seeing uh, coming around differently. And you mentioned a mismatch between ambulatory supply and demand, particularly facility capacity. Um, you, you had a, a really clever term that I was taken by. You said, I built all the wrong stuff. And I, I wonder if, if you've had a chance to reimagine facility capacity, given where the virtual world is headed. Uh, stuff is a technical term, by the way. Um, <laughs> we, we spent the last 10 years or so moving away from small dock in the boxes, you know, primary care and other offices to 
basically a big box type of strategy where we had our multi-specialty practices and our primary care practice and ancillaries together. And uh, we've been very successful in freestanding emergency rooms is the other thing. We've been very successful at those. And like uh, I said, telemedicine was kind of our Alibaba moment when it took off. This uh, situation we find ourselves in today is kind of what Amazon did to retail stores. Because now we have all of these facilities and even here on the main campus, and we have significant excess capacity in exam rooms. In addition, most people don't think about this. I'd say right now about 1,200 of our staff will never work back in this building again, these buildings. They're permanently at home. That number should probably go up to around 15 to 1,700 of our staff. So now we have excess capacity in you know, general office space. And uh, as for what to do with them, we haven't, to be honest with you, Tom, we haven't figured it out yet. Uh, some of this excess capacity office space can be repurposed for uh, dry research. Some of it can be repurposed for faculty offices. But the clinic space, we have not figured out what the best strategy to, to use it for. I wish I could say we have, but we haven't. Well, let's think out loud for a second, because having uh, had the, the good fortune of visiting you a number of times down there, um, you know, the Kirkland Clinic and your facilities are extraordinary. They're state-of-the-art. They're huge. Uh, I wonder if we thought out loud, Will, do you think that there's any possibility that not just UAB, but but major tertiary medical centers that face similar facility questions, do you think we might start to use those to solve some of the inner-city socioeconomic uh social determinant of health problems of maybe having some places where we can bring uh, underprivileged folks together and and solve some problems that spill over into their medical utilization? It's an interesting thought. I don't think it would help as much. Um, I think what's needed more than that is services in the communities where they live more than bringing them to the main clinics that we have. Our clinics are pretty, and like many academic medical centers, uh, we're pretty diverse in the populations we take care of. One of the things I'm very proud of about UAB is the way our faculty are paid, they are, because of our funds flow model, they are completely agnostic to the payer class that they take care of. Our faculty get paid the same per RVU, whether that patient is an indigent patient, a self-pay patient, a Blue Cross patient, United or whatever. And so I don't think uh, repurposing the exam rooms here for that would be helpful. I do think, though, one thing, I think this is a temporary problem. I think our capacity will grow back into it. Um, I, I do believe in a couple of years we will fill these rooms back up. But right now we have an excess number of them. We may find ourselves in a situation where you're now, instead of behind the curve, you're kind of ahead of the demographic curve as, as the population ages. And we, we were all worried a number of years ago that, that the aging population would outstrip uh, our supply. Maybe this has kind of uh, recalibrated a little bit, do you think? Could be. It could be, because I do believe that the, the demand for academic medical centers is just going to increase. Uh, yeah, particularly we'll, on the inventory side. 
we certainly see, you know, in the past, they've, they've been operating at or near capacity. Um, maybe this just buys us some time where we don't have to swing cranes and pour concrete. That would be good. Now, Will, you mentioned rural care a moment ago, and I know that, that that's something that's really um, special to you. You're a strong advocate for rural health care. Um, how has the pandemic changed the demands on folks that live in those areas, and, and what can we do to improve their care? In the short run, because of the CARES Act and because of the pandemic, rural hospitals in Alabama are actually financially stronger than they've been in a long time. However, this is a very temporary issue because of the pandemic. In addition, the pandemic has shown how important it is to have these services in rural areas. But what is really needed is long-term systemic changes there in rural care. The first one that I think is really important is we ask rural hospitals to play by the exact same rules that we ask the big urban hospitals to play by. Example of that is price transparency. It, they don't. They did not have the manpower, staff, or expertise to implement price transparency like a large urban hospital. We talk about having different models in rural health, like freestanding EDs, but the rules, at least in Alabama, for uh, operating a freestanding ED, make it impossible to do in a, in a rural area. You cannot make it financially feasible, nor could you even get a license for it. So I think. The first thing systemically we need to do is stop thinking of rural hosp- a hospital as a hospital as a hospital. A rural hospital is a different type of health care that has to be delivered. The second big and the biggest problem is that the rural hospitals, the way they're paid, they cannot continue to be paid on a fee-for-service basis like a, a big urban hospital mainly because what they end up doing is spending all their time and energies just trying to stay open, offering services that they probably shouldn't be offering. Here in Alabama, we're big fans of the global budgeting, similar to what they do in the experiment in Pennsylvania. We have a coalition in Alabama of the state health officer, head of Medicaid, head of the Alabama Hospital Association, and UAB and head of Blue Cross Blue Shield, where we're trying to implement global budgeting in Alabama. And right now, what we're doing, uh, CMS now has that chart program out. Uh, chart stands for Community Health Access and Rural Transformation, which is a kind of a per diem payment for rural hospitals. So we're really working towards that because we believe it's pretty much the future of rural health care. And finally, it's a manpower shortage out there. And one thing that's happened during the previous administration was that they really restricted J-1 visas. And we're facing a shortage of doctors in this country, particularly in rural areas. And without these J-1 visa expansion, we're not going to have the manpower in rural, rural America to take care of the uh, people out there. You know, you just raised a question or you raised an issue that I'd like to spend a little bit of time on, the idea of global budgeting. We recently had a conversation with Kevin Sowers from Johns Hopkins. You know Kevin very well. And, uh, and you know, the Maryland situation where they have uh, uh, global budget revenue. I'd like to um, ask for your permission, would you hang with us and and come back for a second half of a conversation so that we can talk a little bit about uh, uh, health finance changes 
uh, that may be coming in the next five to 10 years. Would you hang in there with us? Sure. I appreciate it. And before we break, I always like to ask a, a question that you weren't anticipating. I don't think a lot of folks know that that you're a collector with a keen eye for American folk art. I've had some dinners with you when we talked about those things. Can you describe a particular piece that you've stumbled across that means more to you than than some of the others? I don't know if I have a keen eye for folk art, but I thank you for the compliment. Uh, my wife, Dana, and I got into collecting uh, folk art when we were young and didn't have a lot of money to buy art. And you can buy folk art uh, at that time a lot cheaper. It's a little more expensive now. Uh, probably our favorite folk artist, uh, there's probably two. One is a guy named Woody Long, who um, lived in Birmingham and in Manioc up in Philadelphia, which was kind of interesting when we lived there because gives that same connection. But I, I suppose my favorite, Dana, and my favorite folk author is a, a man who's, who's dead now. His name was Mose T. That's how he's known in Alabama. He signs his name with the S backwards. His real name is Mose Tolliver. And Mr. Tolliver, Mose T, painted on just about any surface he could find. It could be a, a for sale sign. It could be, you know, for a house. It could be just a piece of plywood. And he painted with regular house paint. And uh, we love his paintings, particularly uh, paintings of roosters. And we have several of them in our house. So I would say that's probably our favorite folk artist. He's Alabama, and he was uh, very authentic in his approach and vibrant. When we get past this, uh, this pandemic and on my next trip down, you, you got to have me over and I'll, uh, I'll take a look. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll snatch one and bring it home for Sandy. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Will and I will be back next time. I hope you'll be back with us. And we'd like to talk a little bit more about the idea of global budgeting as well as health inequities and what UAB is doing to address them. We hope you find these conversations to be thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for our next Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.